Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Judges is a book that I gave a warning last week that there are some, well, let's just put it this way. There's some rated R portions of Judges. Have you guys read Judges? Have you like pre-read Judges and kind of looked at this? Um, if not, we're going to kind of overview the book of Judges. But let's, let's talk about, first of all, the issue of why it's called Judges. When you guys think of Judges, what do you normally think of in your American culture? A person with a robe and a gavel standing behind a bench making a judgment. That is not what the word judges means in the Bible. When we're talking about judges, I want you to think of a military leader, like a general or a warrior or a military leader. Okay, that's what a judge was. It wasn't a person that stood behind a bench and made judgments. They were actually a military leader. Okay, And so I'm not exactly sure why it's translated judge unless i'm not exactly sure but it's kind of lost in our modern day translation but think of military leader authorship nowhere does the book give any indication of who its author is so it's an anonymous book according to jewish tradition now this is just the jewish tradition it was written by samuel but we really don't know but that's kind of the the tradition Judges addresses two questions. Now, let's, let's back up and talk about Joshua. Last week, um, when, when we talked about Joshua, what was the major theme in Joshua? That people actually got to conquer the promised land. They're in the land. The land is parceled out. Everybody gets their inheritance. And so they are in the land. And the, the, the standard was they were to abide by the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law was not to depart from their mouth. They were to meditate it on day and night. Joshua was their leader. At the end of Joshua, what happens? Joshua dies. Okay. So here's the two looming questions that we have in the book of Judges. Number one, how will Israel conduct themselves bound together to God and to the covenant? How are they going to behave? How are they going to act now that they are in the land. Second question, how will they govern themselves after the passing of Moses and Joshua, the founding fathers? Now remember, I said in Deuteronomy, provisions were made for Joshua to what? Take, take the place of Moses. There was the, the, the training, there was the mentoring, there was the ceremony, there was the laying on of hands, there was the elevation of Moses' successor is Joshua. Do we see Joshua appointing a successor at the end of Joshua? No. no. That's a problem because there's no leader to lead them into the land now that they're established in the land. And so the question is, how are they going to govern themselves? How is leadership going to work without Joshua or Moses. All right, let's talk about the structure of the book. There's three major parts. There's the introduction and the conclusion. They are parallel images that demonstrate the irony of Israel. At first, united fighting foreigners. Okay, they're united fighting foreigners at the beginning. How does it end? They are 
at war with each other and they're engaged in idolatry. So it starts out unified fighting the enemy, at the end fighting each other, idolatry. So that's how it begins and ends. The failure to conquer Jerusalem will have ominous consequences. Okay, so let's look at Judges 1, 19 through 21. Judges 1, 19 through 21. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Okay, so we're starting to talk about Jerusalem now, okay? Up to this point, Jerusalem hasn't really been on the map. But we find out right from the very beginning of the book of Judges that the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, was not able to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. Now, let's turn all the way back to Judges 19 real quick. At the end of the story, well, we'll get to Judges, well, hmm. we'll get to there later. That's the rated R chapter. I'll save that, okay? I'll save the rated R chapter till last. But we'll get there. So Jerusalem is on the, on the radar screen. Key idea in the introduction. All right, let's look at chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10 says this. And all the generations also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Does that bother you? In one generation, it was all lost. So what does that tell you about the generation before? What were they negligent in doing? Teaching the next generation. I mean, how can you have a whole generation that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel? Now, what's the work he had done for Israel? Let's talk about some things there. What are some things that God had done for Israel, the big things? Like, let's part the Red Sea, let's have manna in the wilderness, let's have the tabernacle, let's, and then even more recent, the crossing of the Jordan River and the, taking the inhabitants of the land. This new generation did not know any of that. You don't think mom and dad sat them down and said, okay, kids, remember those 12 stones that we brought out when we crossed the Jordan River and we planted those stones and every time we walked by those stones, you were to ask, mom and dad, what do those stones mean? And we were supposed to tell you that's a reminder of how God delivered us out of Egypt. He delivered us out of the plains of Moab, brought us through the Jordan River, gave us the promised land. They did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done for Israel, this whole new generation. So right there, what does that tell you about some problems in leadership, some problems in parenting, some problems in the book of Judges? You have a generation that's not willing to pass down teaching to the next generation. Let me just ask you a question. Can it get lost that quick in a whole nation? Yep, in a whole nation. That's scary, isn't it? To think that a whole nation in one generation can lose that knowledge, that passion, that devotion to the Lord. 
So it shows us the importance of this generation making sure. And so that's why we have people like Andrew and youth workers that work with our youth. But let's just talk real quick about this. Is it Pastor Andrew's job to disciple and raise your children? No. Whose responsibility is it? Parents, and most importantly, fathers. It's their job, both mom and dad, to disciple their own children. Okay, a lot of parents, and let me just be real honest, because we see it on Wednesday nights. A lot of parents come, drop their kids off at Team Kid, drop their kids off at youth group and say, let's let the paid professionals take care of my kids and I will abdicate that responsibility at home and let, let others do that. Um, that's a problem in our culture where we have had a whole generation of youth ministry where we've basically said to parents, don't try this at home because we have paid youth pastors. Now, I know that's not Andrew's philosophy. He wants to come alongside parents and help, but our philosophy as a church is that parents are to be the primary disciples of their children. And that's not what's happening here in Judges. So there's a new generation. What's the pattern? You will see a clear pattern in the book of Judges. The people do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They begin to become idolatrous. They become disobedient. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Some of the sins, well, let's look at chapter 2, verse 10. Or actually, we've already read verse 10. Let's look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Okay. So there's two major sins that the, that the Israelites commit here. Number one is idolatry. They start worshiping false gods. And number two, intermarriage. They start marrying these Canaanites, these Jebusites, and, and God was very specific. When you go into the land, don't commit idolatry and don't intermarry. Stay within the covenant, and they begin to do that. And so it prompts the Lord to anger, and here's what happens. In God's judgment, He allows or ordains another nation or another tribe, another ite, if you will, to come in and oppress them. So not driving out the Canaanites from the land back in Joshua is coming back to haunt them. Because if they would have driven everybody out, they wouldn't have these problems, would they? They wouldn't have the problems with intermarriage. They wouldn't have the problems with idolatry. They wouldn't have the problems with these foreign people coming in and trying to overtake them. So there's a, there's a problem here. So, so here's what happens. And then when they get oppressed by these nations, uh, the Israelites cry out to the Lord for help. Okay, God, we know we messed up. We know we sinned. Please come to our aid. Rescue us. We're your people. We're sorry. We won't ever, 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 ever do it again. I promise. The Lord hears their cry, raises up a deliverer, one of the judges. Now, remember at the, at the beginning I said, don't think of a judge as a person in a, in, a, in a robe with a gavel. Think of a warrior or a military leader. He's chosen by God. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we'll see sort of, sort of empowered by the Holy Spirit, sort of chosen by God to come and lead the people to victory. And so the enemy subdued. A time of peace followed. And then came the death and burial of that judge. And guess what happens again? It happens over again some have argued that it's a cycle what's a cycle something that happens over and over and over and over again i would argue that it's not a cycle but that it is a downward spiral now you're going to see the same thing happening over and over again 
But the reason it's a downward spiral is because each successive escapade is not a mirror image of the one before it, but it worsens in intensity and degradation. So it keeps getting, it's repeat, the cycle's repeated, but it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse with each successive judge. Okay, so it's a downward spiral into degradation. So let's look at these judges, okay? The first one is Othniel. So let's go to chapter 3. And we're not going to, we probably won't spend time going in depth on every judge because some of them are a little bit more, there's more space given to some. But here's the first judge, Othniel. Chapter 3, let's look at verse 7 through 11. This is the first, this is the first judge. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This sounds like a repetition, right? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord, pay attention there, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Okay, this is the first judge. This is the prototype of how it's supposed to work. Okay? He appears as what the model judge should be. Who raises up Othniel? It says right there, the Lord raised him up. From here on out, especially when we get to the kings, it's important to pay attention to the words in the Old Testament of who raises up these leaders. The Lord raises up Othniel. What do we find out about him? In verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is God's man. He's chosen by God. He's empowered by God. God raises him up. He was an able warrior when Joshua lived. If you go back and read the account in Joshua, we find out that he was an able warrior. He leads Israel to success in warfare. Nothing bad about Othniel the judge, okay? The first downward spot, the first cycle here, you've got the prototype judge of how it's supposed to be. So what is a prototype judge going to do? Chosen by the Lord, full of the Holy Spirit, lead the people to victory out of obedience. Are we going to see that again? Probably not. Okay. Who's next? Ehud. This is the gross story. Are you guys ready for some grossishness? As my dad used to call it, grossishness. All right. Chapter 3, verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and, re- and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. Now the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it in his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols in old Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to see him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. 
And he arose from his seat, and he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked him. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when they still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took their key and opened the door, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Now, that's a gross story, isn't it? A fat guy at the outhouse getting killed by a left-handed judge <laughs> and his servants being too embarrassed to go in and knock on the door and say, are you done? Okay, I'm serious, guys. We're getting into some gross stuff here. Now, at first glance, we see some things. Okay, the, the Scripture does not tell us that God so-and-so raised him up. I mean, it does say that God... Maybe I'm wrong there. It does say God raised him up, does it? Yeah, God did raise him up. So it is, but it doesn't say the Spirit was upon him. He does not judge Israel. All we know is that he's left-handed. Now, what's the big deal about him being left-handed? Nothing. No offense against left-handed people in the room, but right-handed meant power, authority. If you were left-handed, you were suspicious. It wasn't good to be left-handed back in that culture. But it worked for his advantage, right? Because what was the king expecting? A right-handed, you know, I'm going to give you a handshake with my right hand, jabbed him with the left, okay? So it worked to his advantage being left-handed. He delivers Israel by deceit and treachery, okay? So the Lord raised him up, but he was not the ideal judge. He has some deceit and treachery going on. The text is silent about Yahweh's relationship to him except for the fact that he was basically raised up by God. We don't see a lot of information there. Now, let's talk about Deborah. Deborah and Barak, or you can call him Barak. Let's call him Barak just for fun, okay? Now, Deborah's a woman. We're not going to go into the whole story here, but her judgeship raises the question about the lack of male leadership in Israel. Okay. We'll tread on some ground here that may be a little interesting. God's economy for leadership in the home and in the church is for male leadership. That's just the way we believe it here at Emmanuel, that there's male leadership in the home, there's male leadership in the church. Not that women are second-class citizens, not that women are not allowed to do anything in the church. We just believe that God teaches that the elders, the pastors are to be men, and then men in the home are to be the, the, the godly leaders. And so we're, the, the Scripture doesn't say that she shouldn't have been a judge, and the Scripture doesn't say that she should have been a judge. All we know is that a woman rises to be the judge in a male-dominated society. What does that tell us about lack of male leadership if a woman is raised up? Now, this is not a chauvinistic statement, but in that culture, for a woman to raise up and be a military leader, what does that tell you about where are the men? We really don't know. It's just it's a commentary on what was going on during that time. But God, does, God there, there is a female judge, and we have to deal with the fact that, yes, there's a female leader there. It doesn't say whether it's right or it's wrong. It just happens. Okay, deliverance is less a feat of arms, but it's more treachery. Okay, she's more not so much a military leader, but she uses treachery and conniving and deceit to bring about deliverance. The song of Deborah is a foreshadow of things to come. If you go to chapter 5, let me see if I've got it on there. 
Yeah, it curses other tribes that did not join the battle. So go to chapter 515. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak and to Valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, they were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. And you go down to um, verse 18. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils for silver. Go down to verse 23. Cursed, cursed Meros is the angel of the Lord. Curses his inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. There's a harbinger here of the fact that the tribes are starting to be disunified. Not all the tribes are coming together to fight. And that's what we kind of see here at the end of Judges is that it sets up this whole idea of what we call tribal, tribal infighting or tribal factions. Well, we don't want to go fight. Judah, you're bigger. Why don't you go fight? What were they supposed to be? One nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all Israelites under Deuteronomy. And if, and if, and if, they all, if there's a war, they all go out to fight, not just one or two. And so there's tribes deciding whether they want to go fight. They're over here marrying foreign women. They're over here in idolatry. They're just kind of um, haphazard in this. And so you kind of have this idea that they're not unified. They're not unified. And, and Deborah's song kind of gives a foreshadowing of that. And I think I put that on there. This is a harbinger of the factualism and tribal disunity that was the ultimate culmination of the final episodes of the book. Gideon. Now we'll spend a little bit of time on Gideon. Because Gideon's kind of a funny story. The, the story of Gideon really disturbs me. I don't like the story of Gideon. I'll just tell you right that. Because he starts out bad, does really good, ends bad. And so it's frustrating when you read that. So let's read the story of Gideon. Um, let's, let's look at chapter 6. Let's start in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah. Is that Oprah? At Oprah. Which... <laughs> Oprah. Ophrah, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abarazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. <laughs> and Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Okay, here's the issue. There's a little irony going on here, isn't it? God comes to Gideon and says, you're a mighty man. You're a man of valor. You're a warrior. You're going to go out and fight. And what does Gideon say? I don't want to do it. I'm from the smallest clan. I'm the least of these. And then we find out even further what happens. Let's keep reading. 
So Gideon, verse 19, went into his house and prepared a young goat and an unleavened cakes from an ephah flower. Um, keep on going on down there. Let's kind of skip down to, um, let's skip down to verse um, 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Aborazites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So what does God say? You got an Asherah pole. It was probably some type of pole that they worshipped, a fertility pole. And you got this idol to Baal up on the high place. God says, get in, go tear it down. Go tear it down and, and use the wood from the pole to, to worship the Lord with the burnt offering the way you're supposed to do it. And Gideon does it, but how does he do it? Almighty man of valor. I'm going to sneak around at night and hopefully I don't get cut. Since he says he was scared of his own family, he did it at night. Now he goes and he destroys, he destroys it. And then let's go down to verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abrazites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too followed out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon and Naphtali and they went up to meet them. Okay, so here's the issue. The Midianites are coming against... Gideon. And so, what did I put there? He's slow to recognize God's call. If you keep reading the story, it takes three miracles to kind of convince him. He's a coward and tears down the altars of idolatry at night. We're going to talk about this in just a moment, but um, here's the miraculous victory. Okay, let's look at verse se- chapter 7, because this, probably this is the one that we're most familiar with. This is where it gets exciting, because God does a great work in, in this um, supposedly humble man. I, I wouldn't say he's a humble man. I think he's more of a coward that um, was the reluctant judge. And God said, you're going to be a mighty man. And so here's how it gets even more ironic. What do you think a mighty man would do? He'd go out, he'd be the leader, he'd have this huge army going against the Midianites, but God says we're going to do things differently. Does God always do things the way we'd expect God to do things? Does God take the big, the popular, the powerful of the world? What does he take? The foolish, the weak, the despised, the nobodies, and says this is how we're going to do it. So here we go. Chapter 7. Um, blah, blah, blah. Let's start in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Isn't that interesting? Israel, you're too big to go fight them because if you win, all you're going to do is boast and say, We did this in our own power. Now, Therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So God says, okay, if you're scared, go back home. 
22,000 of your troops leave. You got, okay, that gives me great confidence, God. At least we got 10,000. All right, let's keep going. And the Lord, verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you, there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink... And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, you know the rest of the story, right? They go with 300 men up there and um, they, they start to blow the trumpets and they had torches in their hands and everybody gets scared and, and they ended up winning the battle. with What was the starting number? 22,000, probably 32,000 because 10,000, 32,300. Let's put it that way, I guess. A lot, over 30,000 people down to 300. And God does this miraculous victory with this reluctant, cowardly guy that goes at night because he's scared of his family. Okay, now the thing about Gideon that really bothers me is God does this amazing thing in his life. And let's go to chapter 8. And this is where you get really frustrated. Look at verse um, 22 of, of chapter 8. Oh gosh, this is where it gets kind of annoying to me. I'm just kind of venting here my frustration. And I think when you read the Bible, you're supposed to get frustrated with these characters. If you don't get frustrated, something's wrong. Because God does this great work of grace. God does this mighty miracle. God proves himself strong. And then let's talk about Gideon's ephod. Not his iPod, but his ephod. Okay. (laughs) Then the men of Israel, verse 22 of chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Okay, this is the first time we really hear of this whole idea of what? We want, to, we want you to be our ruler, not just a judge, but we want, you to be, we want you to be the permanent king. Rule over us. You and your sons and your grandsons, we want a perpetual dynasty here because, I mean, who wouldn't? It's a great moment. You won with 300 men. You're, you're this great, mighty leader. Rule over us. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, oh, verse 23, Gideon said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, that's a good, that's a good thing, right? I'm not going to take the mantle of king because really, ultimately, the Lord is the ruler here. I'm just his servant. Okay, great, great statement, but let's keep reading. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in at the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars and that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, 
and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What happened? That's like, what happened? It's like one verse, he's like, I'm not going to be your king. God's going to be the king. But here's what I want you to do. Bring all your gold. We're going to make this beautiful ornament for me, and I'm going to have this 1,700-pound shekel gold robe. And what is the word that's used there? I don't know if your translation says that. All Israel whored after it. Okay, so here's, we're starting to, to get to this metaphorical language, okay? From here on out in the Old Testament, God is often going to talk about prostitution. Not in the sexual sense of the term, but prostitution is going to become a metaphor for the spiritual idolatry. Israel is married to who? Yahweh. Israel and Yahweh are in a covenant marriage relationship. God is the husband, Israel is the bride. And when they go off to worshiping other gods and going into idolatry, they're committing spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution, spiritual whoring, going after other false gods. And so that's why the language is so strong here because it's as if God himself is married to the nation of Israel. And then what does it say there? It became a snare. It became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So how does he start? Coward boy, does really well. Wins with 300 men, make us king. I don't want to be king. God is king. But I want to have this gold ornamented thing that's going to be a snare. Now, if that's not bad enough, just keep reading and you get more frustrated. Look at verse 29. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. He has a concubine. What's a concubine? A woman that's not his wife, a mistress. So, when you think about the story of Gideon, we off, what do we often think about? The, the fleece, the 300 men. But how does he end? Ensnared with materialism, with the concubine. And the son, Abimelech, guess what's going to happen? He's the next judge. And it does not go well. Downward spiral. Abimelech, chapter 9. We're not going to read about this, but what you find out is that Gideon's son by a concubine tries to seize power instead of being called by God. This is the first time there's a power grab. God does not raise up Abimelech. Abimelech tries to seize power himself. He tries to take it upon himself to be the leader, to be the judge. He becomes not a deliverer, but an oppressor. He basically enslaves his own people. Instead of delivering them, he enslaves them. He's not a servant, but a murderer. He kills many Israelites, and he kills 70 of his own brothers. How many sons did Gideon have? 70. Abimelech was the concubine's son. He killed all of the sons. So remember Othniel? Called by God, empowered by the Spirit, leading. Downward spile to now you've got an illegitimate son of Gideon who's murdering his own family as the leader. How has it gone from that to that in just a short amount of time? It's kind of scary. That's why it's called a downward spiral. Jephthah, chapter 11. 
Um, let's just talk about Jephthah here. We'll, we'll read a little bit about Jephthah, just because I like his name, Jephthah. He's got some weird names in here. Don't ever name your kids like there's some biblical names you probably should not name your kids. Okay. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Wow, thanks. That's how he's, that's how he's introduced. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his, son, when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So what's going on here? I'm an illegitimate child. The real children don't want me around, so I'm going to leave and I'm going to surround myself with worthless fellows. Okay. Now, if you go on down to verse 11. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. Do you see the subtle shift there? Does God ordain him as leader? The people made him leader. Keep that in mind because that's going to play out again. When the people want to make the leader as opposed to God ordain the leader, it always goes bad. Just think about that. We're going to get to Saul here in a few weeks. But when the people want to make a leader, it doesn't go well. God is provoked to anger, but again holds to his covenant with Israel. He's not an Israelite, but a Gileadite. Okay, one other thing we need to realize here is he's not even an Israelite. He's a judge, and he's not even an Israelite. Now, you may think, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, it was just a given that if your leader was going to lead, he had to be one of the covenant people of Israel. He's a Gileadite. He's an outsider. He's a son of a prostitute. Now, he makes this rash vow. Let's keep going and find out what he does because it gets kind of very tragic. Let's look at um, verse 29. This is where it's sometimes it's very confusing in the judges because look at verse 29. The spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Okay, so you'd think that if the spirit of God was on him, he would be doing the right thing. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah in Gilead. And from Mizpah to Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them. Now keep going on down to verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with jances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble for me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take it back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. 
four days in the year. What does he say? He makes a bargain with God. God, if you let me win this battle against the Ammonites, the first person that walks into my sight, I'm going to offer them up as a burnt offering for you. Now, is he thinking there? What's he thinking? All I want to do is, is win this battle. And so who walks out? His one and only daughter. Now, she doesn't protest, which is very interesting. She's like, you've done this thing for the Lord. I trust you, Father. You've made the vow. You can't go back on your word. Just give me two months to go up in the mountains and mourn the fact that I've never been married and never going to bear children. I'm going to die. So at least he gives her two months to go with her friends and go up in the mountain, comes back, and he has to kill her. Does that bother you? What bothers me is that they said the Spirit of the Lord was on him. That's a, that's a problem, uh, not, not a theological issue that I'm going to struggle with, but it's just interesting that it says there, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Now, here's the ultimate question. Could he have reneged on that and said, God, I was just... See, this is a hard thing to say. If you make a vow before God in that culture, according to the law of Moses, could you renege on that vow? Not really. So he's caught in a catch-22. If I, if I renege on God, I could probably incur the judgment of God upon me but if I don't if I renege I can save my my only daughter so what's the bottom line of this does he show wisdom as a parent it's a rash vow what does it mean to be rash he's not thinking he's not using wisdom Jephthah he ends up destroying his only child all right let's get to Samson Chapter 13, verse 1. And there's a lot of room given to Samson because really he's the last, the last of the judges. Um, chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years of being oppressed. But then finally, the Lord speaks to this couple let's look at verse 2 there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her behold you are barren and have not born children but you shall conceive and bear a son okay these are the stipulations of the son so pay attention to this therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold you shall conceive and bear a son no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 7. But he said to me, Behold, you shall not conceive and bear son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay, as you continue to go and read, you find out what this Nazarite vow was. Okay? There's three parts of the Nazarite vow that the angel of the Lord told his parents that had to happen to Samson. Number one, no razor on his head. So he had to be, you know, long-haired dude, okay? He was not to be near grapes, near wine, not even go near a vineyard, okay? If there was a vineyard in your way, you had to walk around the vineyard. Couldn't be anywhere near a vineyard, okay? Also, he could not touch the dead carcass of a human or an animal, those are the three stipulations. Now, we may think, well, that's kind of weird. Well, I don't know the whole ins and outs of the Nazarite vow. All I know is that for the specific situation with Samson, it was very specific. Don't cut your hair. Don't go near a vineyard or get drunk. 
don't touch a dead animal. Okay. Now, as you read the story, what do you think is going to happen? Does all three of those. Number one, he allowed Delilah to shave his head. Okay, that's the big Samson and Delilah story. Number two, he entered the vineyard of Timnah. And then when he killed the lion, he scooped the honey out of the dead lion he had killed. So he breaks three of the major things. Now think about this. If, if, if the angel of the Lord came to you as a mom who was barren and said, okay, you're going to conceive this special child. You've been barren, and there's just three things that he's not supposed to do. Don't let him cut his hair. Don't let him touch a dead animal. And don't let him go near a vineyard. Do you think as a mom and dad, what would you be drilling in this kid's head since he was like a little kid? Okay, we're going to have a little wine over here with dinner, but, you know, you can't come close. Don't go out there and, you know, there's a dead dog on the side of the road. Don't touch him. You know, you're just going to have to have your hair in your face. It's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's the look. Kids are going to envy you because you got the long hair. Okay, so just don't, don't do these things. But here's the issue with Samson. He had a weakness with his sexual appetite. That was his downfall. He married the unnamed Philistine woman from Timnah. She was just called the Philistine woman. Now, we're introduced to the Philistines here. What was the big issue back in Deuteronomy? You were not to marry outside the people of Israel. What does he do? Not only does he marry outside, but he marries a Philistine. And they don't even give her name. And that's probably a literary device to say that this was such a, a really bad thing to do that we're not, the author's not even going to name her which is kind of interesting. He had a, also, he had a prostitute from Gaza. He married an unnamed Philistine, and at the same time, he had a prostitute from Gaza. And he fell in love with Delilah. He had three women. Sexual appetite, three women, downward spiral. Now, here's the big issue. Here's the metaphor. His inclination toward foreign women becomes a metaphor for Israel itself in its quest to prostitute itself to foreign gods. This is kind of what I was talking about earlier. But Samson emerges as, a, as the living metaphor of Israel. What is Samson known for? Okay. Sexual immorality, disobedience, rebellion, idolatry. This is what Israel comes to be known for on a grand scale. Not necessarily, yes, there's sexual morality, but it's this whole metaphor of Samson is prostituting himself with foreign women. Israel is prostituting itself with foreign gods. It's that whole imagery of, of Yahweh, the Lord, being married to Israel, and they're not staying in the covenant of, of, this, of this marriage of Israel to God. The Spirit of the Lord was on him at the beginning. So let's look here. That was an important thing for a judge. Remember 13.25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. So the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Now let's look at verses 14, or chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. 
his father and mother said, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Do you see the, the issue there? I don't care what the, world, what, what, what the word says. I don't care about what my parents say. I don't care about God's standards. It's what I want to do because it's right in my eyes. Does that define our culture today? I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care that I was brought up in church and I know what God's law says. I don't care about any of these things. I'm just going to do what I want to do because it's right in my eyes. I'm the judge, pardon the pun, I'm the judge of what is right and wrong and I will do what I dang well please. And that becomes a metaphor for Israel because we'll see that in just a moment. Look down at verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. In other words, I think it's also a metaphor for saying she was a hot babe because all he cared about was, I see this fine girl. She's a Philistine. I don't really care what her name is. I just want her as my wife because she looks right in my eyes. She's the unnamed Philistine. Now, in chapter 15, verse 14... It's so weird. I don't know if you noticed this literary convention. Chapter 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Chapter 14, I'm going to go marry this unnamed Philistine. Like this back and forth, like the tension. Okay, 15, 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, but the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arm became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and when he struck a thousand men. So this is where we get the, the strong Samson, the jawbone of, an, of a donkey. He's out there fighting like the big superhero, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So there was moments where... Now, let's just talk about this for a moment. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. This is probably a good digression. This is not in your notes, but one thing you'll find is that in the Old Testament... It used terms like this. The Holy Spirit came, what? Upon a person or anointed a person. But there's never this sense in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit ever permanently indwelt a person. We really don't have until the New Testament, Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit would come, where Jesus says in John 14, let's just turn there for a minute, what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 14. Again, this is not on your notes, so we'll just have to take a digression. But John 14. Yeah, John 14, um, 16. John 14, 16. It's 17. And as a matter of fact, John 14, 15, and 16 is all the upper room discourse of Jesus right before he's, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And a lot of it talks about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. So John 14, 16. And this is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit will come and he will dwell in you. He will be with you forever. Now, this doesn't mean that Old Testament believers weren't regenerated in the sense that they weren't Christians. It just means that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not permanently come and live inside of Old Testament believers in the same way that he does us now 
in the New Testament. He would come upon them for ministry. He would come upon them for empowerment. He would come upon them for specific tasks. But we, and there's some debate about this. There's some scholars that would say, no, the Holy Spirit did indwell Old Testament believers. And so it, it, there, there's kind of some, some debate about that. But what I want us just to realize is that there's a tension here in Judges where, yes, the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, but overall his flesh got, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is, is weak. That's, that's Samson. When his head was shaved, he didn't know the spirit had left him. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. <laughs> Samson went down to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. In one verse. Sar, she was a prostitute, went in and had sex with her. Boom. I mean, it's so, um, the thing about judges is so raw. It's, kind of, it's not like, it's, not, it's like, okay. <laughs> Thanks for the little bit of information there. And so he, he goes down in, in verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Okay, so now I go down to chapter 20. I mean, chapter, verse 20. Actually, let's look at verse um, 15 because this is interesting, Delilah. Don't name your daughter Delilah or Jezebel. Probably not two good names to name your, your daughter. Verse 15. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. What's she doing? Not necessarily nagging, but she's putting on the, if you really love me, you would tell me where your power comes from. And don't you love me, Samson? And she's just playing the whole, you know, manipulation game until it's pressed him day after day after day. So it's, it's vexed him to death where it's like, okay, if I don't tell her my secret, I'm going to die. So, I mean, he's like, obviously you know, at a point of weakness here. And he says in verse 17, and he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor's never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now go down to verse 20. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. He did not know that the Lord had left him because this manipulative woman got the better of him. He wasn't strong in the Lord. He died a helpless, eyeless, disobedient man mocked by the Philistines and who brought disgrace to the Lord. That, this downward spiral of Samson. So here's the question. Will having a king make a difference? Let's look at the first instance that this term is used in chapter 17, verse 6. It says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what's the problem in Judges? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Why? Because there is what? No king. Now, what's interesting here is, has there ever been mention of kingship yet? Do they know what a king is? And my answer is yes, but we'll have to get there. 
I'll just give you a hint. Back in Deuteronomy, there's a whole chapter about what the king of Israel is supposed to be like in Deuteronomy. So they understood, if you read Deuteronomy, what the king was supposed to be like. But the issue is, there's no king. So obviously, the, the, the writer of, of, of Judges is making a statement here saying, there's anarchy in the land, there's spiritual adultery, there's rebellion because there's no leadership. Okay, and he's going to repeat this theme. So let's see where it shows up again. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 21, 23, we'll see it again. In those days, this is the very last, this is the very last line of the book. This is how it ends. Okay? It ends with this very sad, cliffhanger-type statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Boom. Curtain closes. It's done. Everyone did. So the question is, will having a king make a difference? Will kingship be a solution to both the religious and social ills of the nation? If they just had a king, would things be better? God's given them judges. Not necessarily kings, but military leaders to deliver them, i.e. to be spiritual leaders. Has that helped? Is a king going to help? Gideon begins the foreshadowing of this issue of kingship. We already talked about that, where they wanted to make him king. The issue of the Benjamites. Okay, here's the issue. Look at chapter 20, verse um, 13. Now, therefore, this is kind of in the middle of the thought here. Um, Israel is warring with their own tribe here, Benjamin. Um, Let's start back in verse 12. And the tribes of Israel, this is in chapter 20, verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that should have taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Who's the rebellious tribe? The Benjamites. The Benjamites emerge as the rebellious tribe that doesn't want to play in the sandbox. What tribe would produce Israel's first king? The Benjamites. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So we've got this whole idea that the king that's going to come, and we'll get to this when we get to Kings and Samuel, Saul, the king that's going to come, emerges from the tribe that's the least compliant, the most rebellious, the one that's causing the factions, the one that's causing disunity. So right from the very beginning, there's a foreshadowing that anything that comes from Benjamin is not going to be good. They've already got a reputation of not playing by the rules. Did you have a question, Don? No, I probably should ask this question. You can ask the question since you're my wife. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Is there any link between that Saul from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and the other Saul from Because Paul is from the Benjamites too, right? Yes. And he yes. also Saul, so... Yes, Is that there's. Just the line I'm drawing in my head they both have the same name and both from the same tribes. I'm not sure if you can make the connection between the kingship issue, but it may be an interesting study to, to compare pre-Saul's conversion with King Saul. That'd be an interesting study to do. But yeah, they both have the same name and both from the same tribe. Okay, the issue of violence. Okay, there's 
Judges is a very violent book. We've looked at a little bit of that. Ehud and Elgon. You got the gross stories of knives, fat, and bathroom humor. <laughs> we didn't read this, but Jael drives a tent spike through the temple of Sisera. That was kind of a gross thing. You know, it's just like, ooh. If this were made into a movie to the T, I guarantee you it would be rated R. Now, if I were to say to you, um, we're going to talk about a story about a long-haired guy that has a lot of women on his shoulders and he goes around drinking beer and beating up people and basically um, you know, has sex with all these women, would you think I'd be talking about a story in the Bible? We're talking about a sick and we're talking about a, you know, a TV show on, on TV or whatever. The wailing and death of Jephthah's daughter, we talked about that issue, that the rash vow he made there. Samson's eyes being plucked out. It's like, why? The question you got to ask, here's a question you got to ask when you're reading Judges. Why, did, why doesn't he mask the violence? Why, doesn't he just, why didn't he sanitize it? Why doesn't he PG-13 or PG it? Why does he have to R-rate it? It's a question you got to ask. The people, it's a bigger issue. There's no hiding the depravity because that's the point. The point is the people are doing what's right in their own eyes, and he wants to intensify that by showing the violence. And so the violence also becomes like another character in the story to illustrate just how bad things had gotten. Now here's the epitome of violence and depravity, chapter 19. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Does that strike you as weird? What is he? He's a Levite. What's a Levite? A priest. A priest. The religious leader. And what's the first thing we hear in verse 1? This Levite took a concubine. Okay, that's wrong. But it even gets worse. What does this Levite do? This holy priest of the Lord. He goes on and basically gets drunk. Well, do we want to read this? This is the worst chapter in the whole Bible. I think we should probably... It's okay if we read this? Are you guys ready for it? If you haven't read Judges yet, you need to go home and say, is this really in the Bible? And yes, it is. Okay. We may skip some parts there. But anyway, he's got this cut. Um, she was unfaithful. Um, let's go down to... Do, 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 do. They're spending the night together. They're, they're drinking. They're, they're, um, okay, do, do, do. let's go down to um, verse... Let's go down to verse 9. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night... Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning and for your journey and go home. Basically, they've been up drinking all night together, and he says, it's too late for you to go on your journey. Why don't you just stay overnight? But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And so they go into the city, and um, they go to spend the night. And look at verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. 
And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in, in Judah. And so this guy takes him in and he's traveling. And so here's what happens in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, <laughs> i.e. another term for having a night of drinking, um, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, that, that is a little sanitized. What, what's really happening? This is a repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah. The men of the house are surrounding and said, bring, bring the guy out, this new guy in town, bring him out that we may know him. Now, let's get a little bit adult here. This was probably an attempt to want to possibly gang rape the guy. I mean, bring the guy out so that we may, we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Okay, that sounds good, right? Don't do this. This is wicked, but I've got a better plan for you, okay? Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let them, let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Okay, don't have homosexual sex with a man, but my concubine and daughters, you can do whatever you want with them. I'll bring them out to you. Okay? Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his house. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of its concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it take counsel and speak that's in the bible if you've never read it before instead of gang raping the man they send the concubine out they abuse her all night they leave her for dead he trips over her and then he basically cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her body parts all throughout the land of israel now if that doesn't make you sick the question you've got to ask is why in the world is this in the bible and there's a purpose for it talked about the homosexual mob they gang raped her left her for dead the master doesn't care he trips over her in the doorway he cuts her up in 12 pieces all these characters are ironically and mysteriously nameless we don't know the name of the concubine we don't know the name of the levite we don't know all it's called is the master the woman the men there's a literary convention this is literally a device to show that every man is capable of evil in the land. It's a way of saying, this could happen to you if you're not careful. If you do what's right in your own eyes, this could happen in your town, in your city, in your backyard, in your household. This is not for those heathens way off there that don't know God. This could happen here. Anybody's capable of this, especially a Levite. Every guest can be mistreated. Every woman could be raped and killed. Every spiritual leader could become corrupt. In this Canaanite land, 
the dehumanization of people is at its peak. Also, interestingly enough, God is never mentioned in this long narrative. All of chapter 19, God is never mentioned once. That's not by accident. The last phrase is a question. It says, consider it. Think about it. Literally, in the original Hebrew, it reads, set your hearts to consider her. Think about her. Think about it. Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen in all of Israel from the day they came out of Egypt up until this day. This is, ne- this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the nation of Israel up to this point. The shock value was so high that it left people speechless. And it's supposed to do that. Could this really happen? Is Israel really that bad? Has it gotten that bad in Israel where it's reached this peak of depravity where Levite priests take concubines and have them gang raped by the men of the city and then cut her up in 12 pieces? Kid, this Is Israel at its lowest point? And the answer resoundingly is what? Yes, because why? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Could spiritual leaders be so cold and inhumane? Was gang rape and overt homosexuality so commonplace? Where was God in all of this? There was no king in Israel. The very last verse of Judges. Let's go back to the very last verse of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. Is this talking about an earthly human king? Is it a play on words? There was no king, lowercase, person on a throne. Is that really what it's talking about here? Or is it a metaphorical way of saying Yahweh? even though he is king, is not being recognized as king. They're not submitting to their true king, the Lord. The covenant was broken. Every person did as they saw fit. Lawlessness, depravity, immorality, and transgression are the cultural and religious norms of the land. Yes, Dorothea. I would say this, that... Because God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, he never turns his back on them, but he will discipline them and he will bring about judgment upon a certain generation. But overall, you have to say no, because at that point, Israel would cease to exist. He could have at that point said, you're no longer a nation. Now, eventually, we'll see exile as the ultimate judgment because God kicks them out of the land for 70 years. And so everything's tied back to that land promise. But as the covenant God, who is a God of Hesed, a God of loving kindness, he will always remain faithful to his people. But I think there's periods of extreme judgment, the wrath of God. Now, let's talk a little bit about the wrath of God. Okay, When we talk about the wrath of God, there's two ways, there's two types of wrath of God. Okay? The wrath of God can be seen in what we call his active wrath. His active wrath would be 
Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah. Things have gotten so bad, I'm, I'm blazing down fire from heaven. We're destroying all these people. I'm going to actively do something to, to bring about my judgment. The flood, that's the active wrath of God. But there's also something called the passive wrath of God. And you see this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, God says that he just gave them over. God lets them do what they want to do. God's passive wrath would be like this. Okay, if you want to do what's right in your own eyes, go for it. My hands are off. Let the natural consequences of your sin catch up with you, and I'm not going to intervene. So God can pour out his wrath, and by saying, I'm just, going to, I'm just not, going to, I'm not going to intervene. I'm not even going to show common grace. You guys want to get evil? Go for it. Go for it all you want. I'm not stopping you, but you better be ready for all the consequences that are going to come upon it, and I'm going to leave you to your consequences. Sometimes that could be more scary because it's harder to see, isn't it? Fire coming down from heaven is pretty easy to see, right? But sometimes God says, but there's that passage in Romans. Let's just turn there real quick because Romans chapter 2, and then I want us to get to this final thing. If you go back and read Romans chapter 1, the whole point is that people are suppressing, lost people are suppressing the knowledge of God. They're not obeying God. Um, They're they're becoming idolaters. And God just says, I'm just going to give them up to their passions. But a very important passage of Scripture is is Romans 2, 4. 2, 4, and 5. Here's here's where the gospel comes into play. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's the question. If God is being patient, if you're sinning your heart out and there's no consequences and there's no um, bad things happening to you and there's not the immediate discipline of the Lord and, and you're experiencing kindness, what is that meant to do? It's not meant for you to say, oh my goodness, God's giving me a free pass. I might as well keep on sinning because nothing's happened to me. It's to remind you that this kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This kindness is meant to lead you to repentance because there could come a day where it's too late where you don't have time to repent and you will experience God's wrath. So God's kindness at times when you're sinning is meant to always lead you back to repentance. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look here at the setup. Oh, lessons for today. Who truly is king? These are just some lessons. God will punish sin and his people and will use pagans to do it. Can God use pagan people to punish his own people? Could God allow or ordain or institute a foreign nation to come in and take over America as a way to get his Christians purified? Absolutely. Hope it doesn't happen. But God also shows grace through spiritual leadership. The fate, and this is what I keep saying week after week, and we'll see this, the fate of the nation rises and falls on spiritual leadership. When God is absent in the land, violence and anarchy are sure to follow. And we're seeing it in our own land, aren't we? Anarchy and violence. God, again, demands ultimate obedience to his covenant through a love relationship and wholehearted worship. Now let's get the setup for Ruth, because we're going to talk about Ruth next week, okay? So... Judges ends, you've got to read Judges, the last verse of Judges and the first verse of Ruth almost together. Okay, so let's go to the last verse of Judges. What, we've just been there. What's the last verse of Judges? 
Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own rhyme. Boom, turn the page, keep reading. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his, of his wife was Naomi. Okay, so Ruth takes place when? During the time of the judges, it's very important when we get to Ruth to understand context, context, context. Because what have we seen happening so far? What's going on in the time of the judges? Spiral down, degradation, immorality, violence, anarchy. And that's why when Boaz unfolds as this character of honor, it is such an amazing situation that Boaz acts the way he does when you have the backdrop that this is the time of the judges. Okay, and by the way, who was Boaz's mom? Rahab. Okay. So he knew a little bit about prostitution, right, from his mom. Bethlehem means house of bread, yet there's a famine. Elimelech means God is my king. There's no king in Israel, but the main character of Ruth at the beginning is a guy named God is my king. And instead of saying, God is my king and I'm going to stay in the house of bread, I'm going to take my family where the grass is greener to where? Moab. And what do we know about Moab? Initially, when Lot had the incestuous relationship, Moab was the child. Moab is a metaphor. Moab are the people that always drive Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. So the guy who says, whose name means my God is king, in the town of House of Bread, is taking his family out of the House of Bread to the land of Moab, where God is not king, in the time of the judges. And thus, that's how Ruth starts. And we'll talk about Ruth next week. Because Ruth, Ruth has been said to be the greatest short story ever told. Four little chapters, great drama, great tension. We'll get to Ruth next week. But Judges has to be the setup for Ruth because it takes place during the time of the Judges. How are we doing on time? Five minutes, all right. Any final questions or comments or snide remarks? Judges is a depressing book, isn't it? Now that we're over that, we can move on to something like more exciting like Judges, but I mean like Ruth. It, it, like when you do your Bible reading every year and you go through Judges, it just kind of, it's always like, I don't know if I could preach this on a Sunday morning. I think it would get, we'd have to have like the children out of the room. <laughs> yeah, so many ways. But it, but it's, it shows how real... <clears throat> I think the whole reason why Judges is there is to show what happens when depravity runs amok in a culture that's abandoned God. And there's no holds barred and there's nothing sanitized and there's nothing cleaned up. It's just that's the way it is. And Israel had to deal with it. So. All right, any other questions? All right. Exciting. This Sunday we're having nine baptisms. So when we come this Sunday, we're going to have a wonderful time of I'm going to be baptizing Five, uh, how many am I baptizing? Did I say nine? I'm baptizing six, and Andrew's baptizing three. And so my message is only going to be about 20 minutes long because we're having a lot of, I'll be in the water most of the morning. So it'll be an exciting morning. So um, come this, pa- this Sunday to be, be a part of that. So let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your, your word. I know when we look at the book of Judges, it, it's very depressing. The depravity, the violence, the uh, anarchy just uh, breaks our hearts. And we wonder where, where you are in the midst of all that. And then we're reminded there is no king. 
And so, King Jesus, we know that you're on your throne. You're the king. You're the king of kings and lord of lords. And we want to keep our eyes fixed upon you as the, as the ultimate king, our, our savior, our lord. We want to follow you. We want to love you. We want to obey you. We want to abide in you. We want to be those that um, lead the next generation to godliness, that we would not lose, lose ground in this generation, but we would pass on the truth to the next generation. And, Lord, we would truly be praying for spiritual leadership, praying for those in, in positions of leadership, not just in our church, but, Lord, those in our nation that are leading in areas of our nation. We think of even our own president. We think of Congress people and senators and governors and all those in positions of high authority. You tell us in your word to pray for those people, and we pray that they would be those that seek your will for the good of our nation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.